one psychologist, 20 plus years of experience, and thousands of patients. I'm Dr. Jennifer Pavlik Bellingrot, and you're listening to the Psych with a Mic podcast. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to the Psych with a Mic for part two of Marriage on Autopilot, where we will look at even more ways to make your marriage work. I hope you all enjoyed part one from last week. I know many of you have tried out some of the suggestions and I have been overwhelmed with all the comments, stories, questions, kind words since publishing that podcast just a week ago. Y'all are awesome. I'm hoping to answer some of your questions in this segment. But if not, don't worry. I already have more podcasts planned for topics related to marriage. Thank you all so much for reaching out with your stories. I love hearing how you are putting these things into practice. So last week, we looked at the importance of love, thoughtfulness, encouragement, compassion, respect, trustworthiness, and commitment. Today, I have six more ways for you to make some effort toward your marriage. Okay, let's dive in. Number one is kindness. It really should be obvious that you should be kind to your spouse, but let's look at some specific ideas in this area so you can sprinkle kindness into your relationship more often. First and foremost, very basic, just be kind with your words. Speak calmly and diplomatically to your spouse. When you're upset, avoid sarcasm and passive-aggressive communication, and just communicate openly and honestly about your feelings, thoughts, wants, wishes, desires, and so on. You know, be a grown-up, not a two-year-old. Next, compliment your spouse often. Listen, we all want to hear that we're doing something right. Here are some ideas on specific things to compliment your spouse on. A job well done, such as making a great dinner decorating for a holiday, or finishing a project around the house, maybe. Their efforts, like training for a physical competition or cleaning the house. An accomplishment, like finishing a big work project or earning a promotion. Their intelligence, or helping kids with homework. Their appearance, such as a new haircut or a flattering outfit. Their diplomacy in handling a difficult situation with another adult. Their interactions with the kids or positive efforts at disciplining them or following through with consequences. Lastly, show kindness by encouraging your spouse. We talked about this in the last podcast, so go back and listen to that if you need to. But the take-home message is that you should be your spouse's biggest cheerleader. Number two for today is attention. And this covers a lot of areas. Paying attention to your spouse starts with simple things like making time to talk and making direct eye contact when you do. If you're in the middle of something like dressing a child, cooking or responding to a text or email, and you're not sure what the conversation will be about, you can ask your spouse if they want your undivided attention or if they're okay with you multitasking while you talk. For instance, discussing the outcome of a doctor's visit or an issue with the kids probably requires undivided attention and maybe even privacy. But discussing something funny you saw on social media or a casual conversation you had with a friend probably doesn't. Paying attention to your spouse also means that you are curious about them, interested in what they have going on. 
This is one effort that you most certainly made when you were dating and knew nothing about each other, so go back to those times. Ask how their day was, whether they work inside or outside of the home. Ask what they did, how they filled their time for the day. Ask what the best and worst parts of their day were. This is another great one to do with kids as well. Follow up with your spouse about things they have going on, like a big project, a deal they've been working on, a promotion they're pursuing, or things going on in their life, like a friend who is ill or struggling. Check in with your spouse on how they're feeling, what's been rolling around in their head lately. If you struggle to be curious to ask questions, look online for some getting-to-know-you prompts or dating conversation starters. Go back to the beginning when you just couldn't get enough of your spouse. Attention also means spending time together, doing things together. Maybe it's hiking, watching a movie, or playing golf together, whatever you both enjoy. Another way to give attention is to be observant. Pay attention to your spouse's moods, words, behaviors. Watch for efforts your spouse makes at things. Pay attention to their emotional expressions and responses to things. Over time, you can learn their ways, learn what makes them tick, learn to read them. I'm not saying you have to be a mind reader or anything, but if you truly pay attention and are observant, you can learn a lot about your spouse, which can streamline certain processes or things in the future and might even result in less fighting. Paying attention to your spouse also means being present in a way that's helpful to them. For instance, sometimes your spouse may just want to vent to you about something that went on at work, a challenging situation with a jealous coworker, let's say. They just want you to listen, to be present while they think out loud, if you will. Other times, your spouse may want your input or ideas about solutions to problems they present. What to do with an underperforming employee, maybe. They may want to hear from you regarding your perspective or opinion on the situation. If you're unsure what your spouse wants in a conversation, just ask. You can say, I hear what you're saying, and it sucks that you're going through this. Do you want me to just listen right now, or would you like my input on this situation? Or, I'm really sorry that you are dealing with this at work right now. Were you just looking to vent, or would you like me to share my opinion? Number three is openness. And when I say openness, I'm referring to several things. First, be communicative. Be willing to talk about things. Walk through problems together. Unpack challenges and work toward finding solutions. Second, share your thoughts. Offer input. Share what you're thinking about issues that come up. Things you want the two of you to work on as a couple. Problems you see, and so on. Third, Be honest about your feelings. Tell your spouse how you feel about things they are doing, good or bad, things with the kids, things that are going on around you. For a quick reference, I like to put emotions into four categories. Mad, sad, glad, afraid. Again, that's mad, sad, glad, and afraid. Obviously, there are many more emotions than these, But like I said, this is just a quick reference to get you started if you struggle in this area. If you're more of a thinker, you have to be open to digging into the feelings that go with the thoughts and drive the reactions you're having. 
When I ask couples to dissect a situation with me and take a look at what they're feeling, I find that I'm not infrequently met with thoughts, especially for men. For example, if I say, when your wife said that snarky thing to you, how did that feel? I'm often met with something like, well, I thought she was being rude. You can see that the word thought is actually in his response. But men are often conditioned by upbringing, culture, and or society at large to stay away from feelings. So this is a default type of response. It's not necessarily their fault. If I say, no, that's a thought, I'm asking how you felt. I might be met with something like, it was mean of her to say that. Even though the word thought is not in his response this time, he's still giving me a thought. Next, I might say, That's still a thought. How did you feel? What was the impact on you? He might say, I felt it was uncalled for. Close but no cigar. A reference to a feeling is made in this statement, but only as an introduction to another thought on the matter. So at this point, I usually say something like, okay, choose from these, mad, sad, glad, or afraid. Most often in a situation like this, his response is something like, well, it made me mad. Okay, there we go. Now we're getting somewhere. To be clear, women also get caught up in this pattern at times too, but it seems the conditioning of men in our world makes them more likely to get stuck in this thought loop. Now you might be wondering why in the world I press this guy so much to come up with a feeling. It's because feelings are the result of thoughts. Our feelings come from our thoughts, not the other way around. When you have a feeling, it is driven by a thought, maybe conscious, maybe subconscious, and often occurring within nanoseconds, but a thought nonetheless. Real work occurs at the feelings level as you figure out why your feelings are triggered in certain situations by certain thoughts. Let's go back to the husband we just discussed to flesh this out. So he had an angry reaction to his wife's words. He has to get to the bottom of that to change it. If he responds out of anger, that's just going to beget defensiveness in her. And now we're off to the races. So we identified thoughts related to primary feelings, possibilities of sadness and fear. That research revealed information on thoughts that we can then process in therapy. For instance, does the fear of her leaving come from his past issues with abandonment? If so, he has some family of origin work to do. Or does it come from her past threats to leave, or maybe she even did leave at one point? If that's the case, we have to work on setting boundaries and rebuilding trust and helping his wife find a different way to handle the thoughts and feelings that drive her reactions, because threatening to leave or throwing around the D word isn't fair. If he doesn't figure out why he gets so defensive when his wife is a snarkopotamus, he'll never be able to give her a different response, maybe even one that involves a boundary and eventually keeps her from consciously or subconsciously trying to get a rise out of him. As you can see, thoughts and feelings are more complicated than you may think. Maybe they also need a podcast of their own. This brings me to the fourth item in this category of openness, which is once you identify an emotion that you're feeling, you have to be willing to explore 
what lies beneath. For instance, the anger that the husband identified in our example is a secondary emotion. That means that it is a response to a primary emotion such as fear or sadness. Continuing with this husband then, maybe what lies beneath his anger is sadness. That is, he finds his wife's snarky comment hurtful, which makes him feel sad. He's upset that his wife would speak to him in such a way. Putting it all together then, his feelings are first hurt by her comment, and then this translates into anger for him. Anger is tricky like that. It's always superficial. It's always driven by something else. This is one of the most important emotional lessons that I teach in my office. You have to think of anger like an iceberg. So when you see an iceberg floating on the water, you are only seeing about 10% of it actually. The other 90% is below the surface. So the majority of what makes up the overall size of an iceberg is hidden below the water. This is how anger works. You feel angry on the surface, but the real story lies beneath. Secondary emotions show up when primary emotions are not addressed. For the sake of understanding, let's look at the other possibility, that the husband in our example is feeling angry and that anger is brought on by the emotion of fear. Maybe he gets angry when his wife makes ugly comments because in the past, This means that her next words are going to be something about leaving him. Maybe that's the pattern, so his anger is expressed as a preemptive defense to what's coming next, or maybe as a way to intimidate her or shut her down before she has a chance to threaten divorce again. So the husband's anger shows up because his fear isn't being addressed. He has this pervasive underlying fear that his wife is going to leave him. Because of her past threats and maybe even actions, he has no reassurance that he shouldn't be afraid, that he shouldn't be worried that she's going to leave. No reassurance that even though they fight at times, they'll navigate through those rough waters and ultimately stay afloat. Number four is gratitude. Say thank you for the little things, even if you think they are expected and or the job of the other person. Gratitude is really about paying attention, being aware of the things your spouse does for you, and reinforcing behavior. When you say thank you, not only are you expressing your pleasure with what's been done, but you are also reinforcing the behavior you want to see repeated by drawing this attention to it. This practice is another one that's good to use with kids. Anyone, really. If you want things to reoccur, highlight them. Draw attention to them. Say thank you for everything, and I mean everything. Really, it's not going to hurt you, I promise. It's not like I'm asking for a kidney here, guys. Just do it. Just say thank you as often as possible. Two simple words that mean a lot. Here are some examples. Thanks for unloading the dishwasher. Thanks for picking the kids up. Thanks for working so hard for our family. Thanks for cleaning up the yard. Thanks for carting the kids around to all of their activities. Thanks for putting my coffee cup in the sink this morning when I left it on my vanity. Thanks for taking care of the check engine light on the truck. Thanks for reminding me of the kids' activities tonight. Thanks for cleaning the pool. Thanks for checking on me today when you knew I wasn't feeling well but had to work. Thank you for a fun date night. Thanks for folding the laundry.
Thanks for making my favorite meal. Thanks for getting the dry cleaning. Thanks for helping the kids with that school project. Thanks for last night. That's right. You should be thanking each other for sex. Hey, I said everything, y'all. Plus, don't you want to see that behavior repeated? Okay, number five is boundaries. Boundaries are part of any healthy relationship. Several of these items we've discussed in looking at other marital elements, such as respecting each other, like not ridiculing your spouse in front of others and not having others involved in your marriage. Those are all part of boundaries. In addition, though, marital boundaries should be present in the following ways at a minimum. So no verbal attacks. No physical abuse of any kind. Each person in a marriage should be able to pause or walk away from a conversation that's getting heated. There should always be a plan in place to return to the conversation at a later time, whether that's 20 minutes or 24 hours later. You should respect each other enough to return to the conversation after both of you are calm and ready to talk to each other like adults. There should be no manipulation in marriage. There should be no gaslighting, guilt induction, or blackmailing. In other words, you should not do anything to try to make your spouse question their own opinion, perception, judgment, or memory of events. Outside of fidelity, one of the most important boundaries in marriage is to mean what you say and say what you mean. If you don't mean it, don't say it. Don't pretend. Don't even put it out there. For example, if you're not okay with your spouse going to happy hour or going on a ski trip with friends for the weekend or even changing the decor in the house, don't say you are and then hold it against them later. Trust me, it doesn't work and it's really unfair. It can result in passive aggressive comments, snarky behavior, and so on. Another way of saying this is if you don't vote, you can't complain. If you keep your mouth shut when your spouse makes a choice on something that affects both of you, you don't get to bash them about it later. You should have spoken up. You don't get to hold it against them or give them a hard time about it. Be mature and voice your opinion. You are grown, so act like it. Each person in a marriage should also be able to tell their partner when something doesn't feel good or hurts them in some way, emotionally or physically. That boundary should be enough to make the partner stop. For example, if you are texting with a coworker of the other gender about something other than work-related things that can't wait until the next business day, and your spouse asks you to stop because it hurts them that you're paying unnecessary attention to someone else or giving them your time that should be spent with family, you should stop. Remember, this is also a way to guard against infidelity as we discussed last time. Each partner should be able to decline sex or choose not to engage in sexual acts that trigger them or otherwise make them uncomfortable. Couples should also guard against codependency. That means that people-pleasing should be kept to a minimum. Each person should be able to say no to requests from their spouse without feeling guilty. You should not be constantly sacrificing your needs to put your spouse's needs first. Number six is integrity. Integrity is like a blanket over all of the marriage elements we've discussed. You should practice integrity in all things. According to Wikipedia, 
Integrity is the practice of being honest and showing a consistent and uncompromising adherence to strong moral and ethical principles and values. Now, integrity in marriage means many things. My favorite summary of integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. I'll say that again. Doing the right thing even when no one is watching. Integrity means being truthful and honest. Truthful in sharing your thoughts and feelings. Honest about your behavior and whereabouts. It's about being respectful and trustworthy, which we discussed last time as well. It's about being respectable as a person, being someone with good values and morals. Someone people can look up to because you have a great reputation. No one's perfect and we all make mistakes, but integrity is about doing the right thing whenever humanly possible. It's about making sure your actions match your words and beliefs. Like we discussed before, you can't say you love someone and then treat them badly. That doesn't match. Integrity, then, is about acting in a way that's commensurate with your values and morals, your character. If you believe in being a kind or good person, then you don't act in ways that fly in the face of that belief system. It reminds me of one of my favorite phrases of my mom's. Just act like you have good sense. The Latin derivative of the word integrity is integer, which means whole or complete. So a good way to remember this is that integrity is your inner sense of wholeness that comes from things like honesty and trustworthiness. When you are thinking about doing something, whether that's being insulting or otherwise ugly to your spouse, hiding money or truth, going somewhere other than where you tell your spouse you're going, or lying about something you did, ask yourself, is this in line with good character with values around marriage? If that doesn't work to prevent bad behavior, ask yourself, would I be okay with my spouse doing this to me? People who are impulsive or try to justify their bad behavior are not behaving with integrity. Here's another way of saying it. Integrity is the opposite of hypocrisy. Think about the word hypocritical. Hippo, H-Y-P-O, means under. So hypocritical is under critical or not critical enough of yourself, not having high enough expectations of yourself, not consistent in having words match actions, not internally consistent, which is what integrity is all about. Now, I'm not suggesting that you be hypercritical of yourself, but do be critical of yourself in that you hold yourself to solid standards and values. If you have integrity, you are acting according to your values. If you are a hypocrite, you are simply not doing this. Don't be hypocritical. And remember, if you're asking who should start, who should go first in making these efforts, it's the bigger person who should lead the charge on this. All right, who's going to pick up the gauntlet this week? Who's going to be the bigger person? Get in there, guys, and start making efforts at your marriage. Remember, marriage is work. It's a lot of work. It's a concerted effort for two heads to run one relationship. Let me throw out a little challenge for you guys. If you and your spouse both listen to this podcast, make it a race. Have fun with it. Make it a competition to see who can make the greatest number of legitimate efforts. 
Marriage should be fun, y'all, so have a good time with this. And be sure to message me with details of your escapades. I love hearing stories of success and people having fun in their marriage. If your spouse isn't listening to the podcast, throw down your own gauntlet. Ask them to listen and tell them that you want to have a competition with them. Just play around with these ideas and see what you can accomplish. If your spouse won't listen to the podcast, call me. I know people. We'll make it happen. I'm just kidding. If your spouse won't listen to the podcast, start a competition with yourself. Get a journal and write each day about what your efforts are in these areas and what your spouse's responses are. Consider it an experiment. Watch for a reaction. See if the dynamic between you and your spouse changes. If it doesn't improve at least a little bit after 90 days of making consistent efforts, it may be time to call in reinforcements and consult a professional. Now, three months may seem like a long time, and you will hopefully see your dynamic change well before that. Some people see it change within a couple of weeks or even a few days. In general, though, it takes some time to change your habitual patterns. I mean, you didn't get to this place of dissatisfaction overnight, guys. So give your marriage the time it deserves and celebrate the victories along the way. If you try these things out and have some success, I'd love it if you'd circle back with me and share. I'd love to know what's working for you and how you're working together along the way. As always, remember that our chat today is not a substitute for an evaluation by a licensed provider. If you think you need help, just get it. Set up an evaluation with a professional and see how you can better yourself. You really have nothing to lose. Of course, if you want more information on teletherapy or coaching sessions with me, just visit my website, drbellingrot.com. All right, that's all for today, guys. Thank you so much for hanging out with me again. Be sure to tune in next week as we look at additional areas of marriage, including communication and intimacy. There are several types of intimacy that many of you may not have ever even heard of, and we're going to walk through them all. You do not want to miss this one. So if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you know when the next podcast is being released. Until next time, I wish you peace, blessings, and fantastic mental health. Take good care and drink more water.